Welcome to week number three of our message series, My True Selfie. We're going to uh, be looking again today at who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, uh, what God says about our true selves. And I want to start this morning uh, by playing a little word association game, all right? Are you with me? Um, I'm going to say a word or phrase, and then you just picture in your mind what just springs uh, up there uh, when you hear that word or that phrase. So here's the one we're going to start with, sumo wrestler. What do you see? What are you thinking about? Something probably like this, maybe? All right. Um, Here's another one. Librarian. What comes to mind? Maybe something like that. I don't know. Um, How about this one? A U.S. Army captain. You got that one in your head? Anybody see an image like this one? (laughs) And I'll give you one more. Um, Saint. What do you see? What do you picture in your mind? Now, I'm wondering how many of you went with something like this. A lot of you probably did. That's Mother Teresa. Uh, But you know what I'm pretty much 100% sure didn't come to your mind when you heard that word saint? Uh, An image like this next one. And that's right. That's meant to make you think of you. What if I told you that the closest picture that you have of a saint is what you see every morning in the mirror? You might think that I was crazy because pretty much none of us see ourselves as being very saintly. But God's word says it's actually true. This is who you are in Christ. This is who you are meant to be in Christ. This is an identity marker that God declares about his children. Uh, A couple weeks ago, of course, we started this series, and it's about some of the most amazing things that God says about who our true selves are, some things that many of us have never known, or at least we've really never quite gotten down. And they they all flow, all of these identity markers, uh, from a new life in Christ, what that new life promises. And here's the promise. The promise is no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can become a new person. You can be a new creation. Everything can be new about you. Listen to what uh, the Bible says. This is from 2 Corinthians. Those who become Christians become new persons. They are not the same anymore, for the old life is gone. A new life has begun. All this newness of life is from God, who brought us back to himself through what Christ did. Our theme verses for this series, uh, the verses that many of you are working on memorizing, unpack this even further. They're 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 11. And I would like us all to read these verses out loud together. Are you with me? Are we going to do this? Let's uh, read them out loud all together. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you, out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now that passage is all about who you are. It's just full of identity markers, statements about your true self. And you'll remember last week we talked about the first of those and the most important of those that we are in Christ now, the sons and the daughters of God. I mean, what an incredibly essential and and powerful truth to get hold of and to truly begin to live out. This week, we're going to look at that second identity marker that we are saints, that God has declared us to be holy in his sight. And again this week, like every week, we're going to do this in three ways. We're going to look at three different ways that we can, we can live out God's wonderful light as we learn from 1 Peter 2. Here's the first way. You can go ahead and write this down on your message notes. This is the identity truth, and it is this. In Christ, I am a saint. In Christ, I am a saint. You see, if you are in a relationship with Christ as your Lord, your Savior, if he has forgiven you, he is the leader of your life, you're submitting your life to him, if you have crossed that line, then God has declared you to be a saint in Christ. 
That is how God views you. That's who he declares you to be. It's a status that God has given you, not just a title. It is who you are. It is your identity. And this is actually all through the Bible. But I want to just uh, unpack this for you a little bit by taking a real quick trip through one New Testament book, the letter to the Ephesians. And I want you to see how in just this one single writing, God inspired Paul to convey this truth over and over and over again, this aspect of our new identity. It it begins with the very first book in Ephesians, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul starts by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he addresses this letter to everyone in the church, and he calls them all saints. Then in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Next chapter, chapter 2, Paul writes, verse 19, So then, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Chapter 3, Paul is, is talking about himself in relation to other Christians, and he says, I am the very least of all the saints. You see, everyone in Christ is a saint. In chapter 4, Paul is talking here about the leaders that God has given to the church. And he writes, And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then in chapter 6, almost at the end, Paul's closing out the letter. And I want you to notice the way he reminds them to keep on praying for each other. He says, Always keep on praying for all the saints. You see, there was no doubt in Paul's mind about the identity of someone who was in relationship with Christ. He said, they are a saint. And God doesn't want you to have any doubt about this either. He wants you to know you are in Christ a saint. So, so what is this all about? Because we all know, I don't even have to say it, I think, we all know that we don't really feel like saints, right? You don't feel like a saint. I don't feel like a saint. Why does God call anyone who is in a relationship with Christ a saint. And we think about this, and we, we kind of have in our minds that saints are just special people. They're supposed to be these really holy, almost perfect people. They've committed everything about their lives to serving God and doing God's work. They're doing it in a spirit of humility. They're doing it in the face of great persecution. And we know we don't really fit that bill. Saints are supposed to be these people, for some of us especially, we, we come from this background, and, and saints are these people who have been uh, figures from history in the past, and the church has recognized them as so important that, that they are venerated and even sometimes prayed to. So what does the Bible mean when it calls someone a saint, especially since the Bible makes it clear that every Christian is a saint? Well, the word saint uh, at its basic level means someone who is set apart. Uh, This means that this is someone who is no longer part of the world of sin, someone who no longer has sin staining them, attaching itself to them. Sin is no longer ruling over them. The moment you trust Christ, you come to him for forgiveness, the very nature of your spiritual state is radically altered. No matter who you are, no matter where, where you've lived and what you've done there and how long you've been doing those things, when that happens, you move from sinner to saint. Your identity is transformed. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. You see, when we come to him, God changes us. And God is saying when this happens, as he declares that we are saints, he is saying you are no longer what you were or who you were. Whatever you have done doesn't matter. However you have lived, it doesn't matter. You will no longer be defined by your past. Your past is not the final word in your life. You could put it this way. My past is not the truest thing about me. My past is not my identity. And I suspect there are some of you here, and God brought you here just to hear that, if nothing else, 
You need to know that you are now declared holy in the eyes of God, and that means everything behind you is now different. I want you to kind of stop for a moment and think. I want you to do something for me. I want you to think about that one thing in your life, that one most terrible thing in your life, that that thing you are the most ashamed of. I want you to think about that thing. It's something that feels to you like it can never really be forgiven. It, It seems like it's always going to be a stain on your record. Maybe it wasn't a single event for you. Maybe it was like a season of your life, and you in that season, however long that season went, you did a lot of things that you feel like that about, things you would give anything to forget. Or maybe... It's something right now. It is a single sin, and you just keep going back to it. You keep revisiting it over and over and over again. Whatever it is, let me ask you, what if you could know and you could experience absolute forgiveness for that thing you're thinking about right now? What if you could know that it is wiped off your record What if you could know that to have who you are in God's eyes is never again going to be associated with that thing in any way ever again? Do you see this is the new identity that Christ offers you? This is one of the reasons why baptism is such a beautiful, meaningful part of the Christian life. Because baptism is this picture, this symbol of the the transfer of our lives and our identity from one uh, identity into another In fact, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but in the early church, when they baptized, they would baptize people buck naked. I mean, you know, talk about breaking the internet, you know. (laughs) But it wasn't as much fun as you might think because men would baptize men and women would baptize women. And uh, when they came up out of the water, they would clothe them in this white robe. And it was a symbol that They had begun a new life in Christ as holy as saints. And that's an important symbol of how God looks at you as someone he has declared to be a saint. And you need to understand this identity marker has nothing to do with who you are in yourself. It's not about what you have done or not done. It is simply a declaration that God makes of this new reality for everyone who comes to him for forgiveness and to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. God declares it, and God means what he says. I heard about a Christian professor who was teaching some years ago at the University of Pennsylvania. He was teaching sociology, and as a Christian, he he tried whenever he could to uh, get a word in about Jesus Christ to his classes. And so there was this day he was doing this lecture, having this conversation on the sociological phenomenon of prostitution. And so he said to the class, have you ever asked yourself what the various leaders of world religions throughout history would have said to a prostitute? He said, for example, Buddha. What did he say? No one knew. Confucius. No one knew. Muhammad. No one knew. And then he said, well, what about Jesus? How how many of you have ever wondered what Jesus would have said to a prostitute? At that point, a student on the front row, raised his hand and said, well, I don't think Jesus ever met one. The professor said, well, actually, he did. In fact, let me show you where in the New Testament Jesus met a prostitute. And he starts, you know, like to whip out the word on this kid. And But while he's doing this, the student says, but professor, wait, you you don't understand what I'm saying. I said Jesus actually never met a prostitute. The professor answered, well, you're wrong. Actually, he did. I'll show you in the Bible what he said. The student said, well, I'm not explaining myself, I guess, Professor. My point is Jesus really never met a prostitute because when, like he met Mary Magdalene, do you think that Jesus saw her as a prostitute? And the professor was stunned with the inside of the student because he realized that Jesus didn't look at people who came to him that way. When Jesus looked at Mary, what he saw in her is what he sees in you. A saint. You see, God 
has so changed us in Christ as he forgives all our sin and he wipes away all of our past and he sets aside and covers over all of our shame. He just made us new. That's why the Bible talks about our new life as being born again. It's as if you're starting completely over because you are. You're a new creation. You're a new everything. I want to encourage you, if this is not something that is yet part of your regular ongoing spiritual practice, I want to encourage you to begin regularly thanking God for how he has made you new, how he's given you a new life. I want you to encourage you even to thank God daily for your new identity. Are you doing that? Is that part of your relationship to God? You should make prayers of thanksgiving like these a daily habit where you pray and say, God, thank you for making me a saint. Where you say, God, thank you for setting me apart for your purposes. God, thank you that I am a new creation in Jesus, even though I don't really feel that way this morning. Father, thank you that the truest thing about me is I am holy and I belong to you. Do you pray prayers like that where you're learning and expressing who you really are in Christ. Again, I want to push back because I know some of you may be thinking in this series that we're kind of talking about therapeutic psychobabble and, you know, just self-help, say good things about yourself, and that'll make it true. No, not at all. What we're talking about here is you taking the truth of God's word and then you expressing that truth back to God in a statement of faith and trust that God knows reality and God has declared reality and you are bringing your heart and your mind into alignment with that. That's what this is about. Again, identity truth. I am a saint in Christ. This is who you are. Now, each week, of course, the second way we living God's wonderful light is we have to deal with identity theft because there's always something that comes against our identity. And this week, I want to state it this way. The accusations of my sin and Satan can steal my identity. So we need to kind of talk about what I think is happening right now going on inside many of you right now. There's like this spiritual tug of war because you're kind of, you know, wrestling with grappling with almost everything I've just said. See, a huge part of discovering and then living out your true self, who you truly are in Christ, is to realize that there are always these competing voices that are trying to speak into your life, and they're saying radically different things. And you have to hear these voices, and you have to discern these voices, which one is true. You have to decide which voice you're actually going to listen to. And you need to really pay attention to this because it's so important. Again, God wants you to know you are a saint, but then there's going to be voices that will say other things, right? Even voices that you hear. Sometimes we will find ourselves like looking at our sin, looking at the ongoing struggles that all of us have as we just seek to live for the Lord in this broken, fallen world. And we look at those things, and it is so hard to see ourselves as truly holy, to call ourselves saints, See, here's the reality. I can lose my identity by my own accusations against myself. Even the Apostle Paul, do you know he struggled with this? Uh, Go to Romans 7 and you'll see words like this. Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You hear the struggle? A couple verses down, he he says again, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul goes on to declare, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I just want to point out right now, that some of us, the enemy that does the most damage to us is us. We do it to ourselves. We listen to lies that we have believed about ourselves more than we listen to the truth of God. Here's what I want to tell you about this right now. This is so important. 
so fundamental, so basic, but so important. If you have sinned, the answer is always confession, and it's never self-condemnation. Let me say that again. If you have sinned, the answer is always confession, and it is never self-condemnation. That's why you have very familiar verses like 1 John 1, 9 just tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This means that when you sin and you realize you've sinned, you confess that sin. And when you confess that sin, you need to accept by faith that God has forgiven you that sin, even if you don't feel it. And that's the point where many of us get twisted sideways. Some of us find ourselves thinking that we have to feel forgiven before we'll really accept it. I want to tell you today, you're not to live by your feelings. In fact, I want to tell you what many of you do in this kind of scenario, okay? And the reason I know that many of you do this is because I do it too sometimes. You sin. You confess your sin, and you know God says he will forgive your sin, but you don't feel forgiven. You feel bad about what you've done, so you decide, okay, I've got to do some things. I've got to read my Bible some more, or I've got to do something nice for somebody. And you start kind of running around trying, trying to feel forgiven, and you think, if I just do enough good stuff, then I'll feel forgiven. Do you understand that when you do that, it's really that you're trying to earn God's forgiveness? Instead of simply accepting that God says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and I am just and I will forgive your sins and I will purify you from all unrighteousness. You're listening to voices inside your head that tell you, you you're, you're not a child of God. You've got to earn that status. You've got to earn that favor. You're not really holy. You've got to somehow purify yourself. This is so important that we get hold of this. It's so important that you realize that your particular sin struggle, and we all have them, that struggle is not your identity. It is not who you are. You are not your addiction, if that's what your battle is. You are not your mental health struggle, if that's where you fight. So you need to understand that your, your, your identity is not in that. You need to understand and learn to say, I am not my diagnosis. Some of you, you need to understand that you are not what your parents may have said you are or were, or you are not what your ex is still saying that you are. Some of you who have been abandoned by a father or a mother need to set aside that voice that you've been listening to that's telling you where your worth and identity must be because they walked out on you. You need to set that aside. You are not who that voice says you are. You are who God says you are. You are a child of God. You are beloved. You belong to God. You are God's precious and holy possession. You are a saint. You see, when the lies... Speak louder than the truth, as we just sang. We need to trust God's voice. Your identity in Christ is the truest thing about you. Don't lose your identity to your own voices. Now, in addition to that, we also fight against the voice of Satan, and Satan accuses us, and I can lose my identity by listening to Satan's accusations against me. You know, in our culture in 21st century America, for most people, Satan's kind of a joke. You know, he's a cartoon character that we, we, we don't really see as real. But you need to be reminded right here, right now, that Jesus believed that Satan was a real-life spiritual being. And Satan doesn't want you to know you are a saint. What Satan wants is your personal destruction. And the way he works to do that, we, we see in Revelation 12.10, we're told that Satan is the accuser of God's people. In fact, the reality is Satan is running right now an intensely personal PR campaign that, against you to get your, you to think anything about yourself but this. And he has two main strategies, and they're both very slick. 
the first strategy that he often uses is he kind of plays along with what God says about you, what God seems to be saying, but he twists and distorts it. He, he will sometimes tell you that you shouldn't get too twisted up in knots about your sin. Really, you're okay. Actually, you're pretty great. You're not a bad person, you know. I mean, you make a few mistakes here and there, but you're not a sinner. In other words, what he will try to do is to make you think that you're, you're, you're pretty great and you're a saint intrinsically, like on your own, through your own goodness. But that is not at all what God is saying to you. What God is saying to you is that despite your sin and despite the fact that you deserve his judgment, you can be forgiven, you can be declared a saint through Christ because it is not about your saintliness, it is about his and that is what is being recognized and that is what is being applied to you. You don't earn this, it is a gift. It's always a gift. Now here's the other way that he wants to mess with this because if he can't get us to buy into our inherent goodness, If he can't do that with you, then what he wants to do is enslave you to your badness. He wants to come alongside you and and say, I can't believe that you would ever think calling yourself a Christian. Look at you. You're pathetic. What a terrible excuse for a Christian you are. You say you've come to Christ, but I know how you live. Just look at that. I know the words you speak to other people. I know the things you think in your head. You call yourself a Christian. What a joke. He'll go back to your baptism and say, you took that step. What did it mean? Look at you. Look at the way you live. You're a moral failure. You're a constant screw-up. You are an epic, colossal fail. And then he'll try to deliver the coup de grace. And he'll say, and you always will be. That's Satan. That's his voice. And I want to kind of sketch this out because it's important you learn to recognize and discern between Satan's voice and God's. Satan's voice is always about accusation. And he will take your failure and he will throw it in your face and he'll do it again and again and again. And through, your, through his accusations, he will try to get you to see yourself as a failure and therefore as someone who will always be chained to that failure. You're bound by that failure. That failure will become the defining mark of your life. That's what his agenda is about. But by contrast, there's God's voice. And God's voice is different. When you sin... Instead of accusation, God's voice will bring conviction. And it's such a different voice when the Holy Spirit speaks and works in our lives. We experience what is a a kind of good guilt, a guilt that doesn't condemn us, but a guilt that reminds us that this is not who we are called to be or this is not how we are called to live. This is not how we are supposed to act. It is a guilt that draws us to the Father to ask for forgiveness So we're not failures, we're forgiven. And instead of becoming bound to what we did, chained by those failures, as forgiven people, we are now changed. We can rise above what we've done. We can move past, become different people. You see, this is the process of how we become who we are. You see the difference between these two voices? See, it's so important that we learn to fight against the things that steal our identity from us. Now, the third thing I wanted you to see is how we actually experience this change in real life, how we we actually work this out, become who we are. How do we live out of the reality and live out the reality of who God says we are? And this happens in, in quite a number of different ways, but the key thing you need to understand is they are all tied to training. So identity training, and this week I want to state it like this. By God's power... I submit to spiritual discipline to become who I am in Christ. So here's the reality. God has declared you to be a saint in Christ. This is who you are. It is the truest thing about you. It is your identity. But then God wants you to actually live this out in your real life. God wants you to become who you are so that the world will see his wonderful light, will know how good he truly is, and will give him praise. Do you understand that when you become a Christ follower, God has a very definite 
agenda and plan for your life? I can give it to you in just a handful of words. God's agenda is to make you like Jesus, just like Jesus. That's the plan. We see this in Romans 8, 29, among other places, where it says, God predestined you in eternity past to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus, to be made like Jesus. And so God's agenda is always heading that way. He wants you to be more like Jesus today than you were a year ago. And he wants you to be more like Jesus a year from now than you are right today. He wants to take your life and have you grow and have you change and become that person that he has declared you to be. It is to be like Jesus. See, Jesus is the son of God. So are you. You're a son or a daughter of God. You're a child of God. Jesus is holy, right? You're to become holy like Jesus. And God is working this agenda and working this agenda. And one day, one day, are you looking forward to that day? God is going to finish that agenda. I've got an amazing verse for you. Are you ready for it? It's 1 John 3, 2. And it says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he really is. Is anybody else looking forward to that day when God finishes his work? This is what God is doing. You are a saint, and he wants you to become who you are, and this should be growing and developing and just kind of unfolding in your life more and more and more as you allow God's power and God's spirit to work within you. But we're still not quite clear on how that actually happens. Well, I want to kind of give you a picture of this, okay? And I want you to kind of go with me. Um, if you're a basketball fan, an NBA fan in particular, you're going to like this story. If you don't care about basketball, too bad for you. You still have to listen, okay? So here it is. Uh, imagine that Steph Curry comes to you and says to you, you're on my team. You are now a Golden State Warrior. You're officially a part of our team. And he says, I got us KD, and now I got you. Now you're on the team. Here's your uniform. Here's your locker. Here's your contract. You are now a warrior. But then he says to you, don't worry. Your status as a member of this team, it has nothing to do with your basketball ability. I am simply choosing to accept you and to bestow on you this identity as a warrior. But here's what I want you to do. Now that you're on the team, an NBA team, I want you to allow me to develop you into an NBA-level player. I want you to become what I have declared you to be. Now, how is he going to do that? Is he just going to flip you a basketball and tell you to get out on the court and try real hard? I mean, is that what makes NBA players the kind of athletes that they are? Is that how Steph Curry became the greatest shooter in NBA history? I think the answer is obviously no. He reached his level of play not because he tried to play that way, but because he trained to play that way. And this is very important. He achieved his winning level of performance through this overall lifestyle of preparation and practice, and he did it for decades. I mean, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of jump shots he's taken? Who knows how many miles he has dribbled a basketball? Who knows how many sprints he has run and how many practice uh, passing drills he's engaged in and how many hours, countless hours, he's worked with teammates on developing plays and practice the drills of learning to box out on rebounds. I mean, what we see when we turn on the TV and we watch a game with millions of other people, all that freedom, all that beauty of that athleticism, none of it comes from trying. All of it comes from training. All of it. It is a lifestyle. And that lifestyle not only is those things, but it also determines his diet. It also determines the way he sleeps. If you're a fan of the Warriors, you may know the Warriors are into pretty heavily sleep science. It also determines the way he works with the coaching staff and how he interacts and relates to his teammates. And all of those things, and a lot more than that, they have to be in place before a game is played. And we watch and we see this incredible no-look precision pass, or we see him make a move that leaves LeBron gasping. I love that. 
Or maybe we just see that trademark Steph Curry, 30-foot jump shot that arcs way over the arms of a much taller defender, and it drops through the hoop, you know, nothing but net. It all looks so easy, doesn't it, when Steph does it? But there's only that freedom to do what Steph does because of the thousands of hours, because of the years of training, because of all the sacrifice and all the sweat. Steph neither does any of those things that you dream of doing because he tries. He does those things always because he trains. And here's the headline of this. That is exactly the way it works in your spiritual life, too. It's all about training. That's why Jesus once said, Luke 6, 40, everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. That is why Paul once said, 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's why Paul also wrote these words in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Again, you have a new identity in Christ. So be who you are, and you do that by training. See, as a Christ follower, you can enter into a a life of training and development, and God is going to be your coach, and God is going to guide you, and God is going to bring to bear all the resources of his family, the church, his people, the body of Christ, to help that happen in your life. And that training can begin developing you into the saint that he has already declared you to be. So what do we mean by training? Well, there's all kinds of things we could talk about, but I'll sum them up uh, just like this. They're about the spiritual disciplines. And if you're looking for the secret, you need to stop looking for the secret. Let me just tell you today, there is no secret. I don't care how many books some guy has written telling you the secret. There is no secret. It's not a secret. God's told us what it is, okay? It isn't a secret. It isn't a mystery. You just need to read God's word and see. It's about reading God's word. It is about reading God's word and reading God's word and doing it today and doing it tomorrow and doing it next year and doing it for the rest of your life because it is the living word of God and it is a food for your soul and you're gonna starve spiritually if you don't do that. Why are some of you starving yourselves spiritually? There's no reason. You have the precious word of God and you never open it. See, reading God's word is what reshapes our minds and and recrafts our thinking so that we begin to see reality as God declares it to be, and we begin to live out of that reality. And as we read God's word, we're praying to the Father, and we're talking about what we're reading. We're memorizing scripture along the way sometimes. We're studying certain passages of scripture. We're meditating on it. All of these things that are spiritual disciplines we bring to bear in our lives. This is how God makes us like Jesus. This is how we live out our identity. We become like him through these things. It's also about prioritizing corporate worship. You know, if you think that coming to church and and enduring through an hour or so of whatever happens inside, you know, these walls is like you get to check off a box and that's a little bit better thing. You don't understand this time when we gather together as God's people is meant to shape you and form your heart as you sing God's word and as you pray and as you listen to the teaching of God's word. All those things develop you and train you. It's also what we're doing in small groups. Those same kind of things happen in a different context. Iron sharpens iron. You experience love and service from other people, and you give that to them. You're being shaped. You're being formed. It's also what we do in all of our discovery classes. Like we're doing today, Discovery 201, 
where we're going to actually talk about in depth for four hours, uh, you know, this, this whole process of developing these spiritual habits in our life. I could go on and on, but these are the prime things, and we all need to be engaging in this kind of training, these spiritual habits, these spiritual disciplines, where we order our lives around the things that God has given us to train us. We submit to them, and we begin to live out our identity. Now, in all of this, there's one thing that God will bring to bear on your life that Steph Curry would never be able to do, you know, with those he invests in. And that is the very power and presence of God in your life. God will come alongside you and empower you to do these things. Uh, we see this in one example in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There it is. We're training. And then, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. See, it's this mind-blowing thing that when you come into this relationship with God and you begin to live the way he tells you, God comes alongside you. He takes up residence within you. He gives you his power. He shares his presence with you, and it's there every step of the way. As you enter into training, God will give you the power to actually do that training. You see, he has called you a saint, and he is going to make you one. It is his eternal agenda to make you like his son, Jesus. And you need to understand that he will take you right where you are. You don't need to clean yourself up first to begin this journey. He will take you right where you are with all of your sin and all of your junk and all of your mistakes, all of your rebellion, all of your confusion. It doesn't matter. He will start right there and he will bring that new identity into existence and then he will bring it out of you as you trust him. And isn't that what you'd like? Isn't that what you'd want? We are not saints in and of ourselves. But Jesus declares us that, and he can bring that to pass. All we have to do is be willing to come into a relationship with him for forgiveness and leadership. Let him put us on his team, and then we begin ordering our lives around the relationships and the experiences and the practices and the disciplines of the Christian life that can change us from the inside out. And I just want to tell you today, when you enter into that kind of training, you have no idea what you could become through God's power. No idea. I'm going to close with a story. It's one that I heard several years ago, um, and it's a story about how real this can be, this kind of transformation and identity. It's a story that started over 40 years ago. It's about a guy named Billy Moore. Billy Moore grew up in a real tough city neighborhood uh, in Ohio. It was a life where he and his friends would, uh, you know, drink and smoke crack, get drunk, break into bars, commit all kinds of crime. And he got old enough to join the army, and he did that. He got married, and it wasn't long uh, before his wife left him, took their child with her, he found himself broke. He found himself desperate. And one night, he and a friend were both drunk and high, and they started talking about all their troubles, how they needed money. His friend told him about a guy he had heard about who lived pretty close to the base. This guy didn't trust banks. This guy kept all of his money in his bedroom. And Billy asked some questions and found out this wasn't some big, tough guy. This was a really old man, like a grandpa. And he said, let's go. He goes back to his barracks. He gets his service revolver. Together, they drive to this man's house. This man, 77-year-old man, was in the bedroom. Billy kicked down his front door, and he grabbed a shotgun that he used for hunting. Billy came to the bedroom, and he kicked down that door, and as he got into the room, this guy pointed the shotgun at Billy and pulled the trigger, but his aim was high, and so the buckshot just went over his shoulder. Billy took his gun, aimed it at the man, pulled the trigger twice, and he killed this elderly gentleman. He went through this victim's pockets. He ransacked the bedroom. He walked away with $5,600. He then fled to his trailer. This is in rural Georgia, but it didn't take very long for the police to track Billy down. They caught him with the proceeds, and he admitted his guilt. 
and he was sentenced to death. I want to show you his mugshot uh, when he was arrested. Here's a picture. Billy Moore's mom knew a pastor and his wife who lived near the jail. And she called him and she said, I've got a son who's been arrested for murder. Would you please go visit him? And they did. They told Billy that Jesus was willing to give him a fresh start, a new chance at life. Billy stared at them in disbelief. Billy said, you're kidding me. Do you know what I've done? I killed an old grandfather. My life is over. There's no hope for me. But this couple looked back at Billy and they said, you're wrong. You don't understand. Jesus loves you so much that he wants to turn your life around. He wants to forgive your sins. He can make your life count. When that conversation, Billy not only heard their words, these two people, but he also saw Jesus in them. He said later, nobody had ever told me that Jesus loved me. And in that moment, it was a love that I could feel. It was a love that I wanted. It was exactly the love that I needed. And so Billy Moore, as hopeless and broken an individual as you could ever find, he got on his knees and he prayed. And he said, God, I'm sorry for all that I've done. And I want to live for you. If you would receive me as your child, I would be so grateful. And if you would allow me to have a life with whatever time I have left to make some kind of difference, I would be even more grateful. He prayed a prayer, and Jesus heard that prayer. There was a bathtub on death row, and permission was granted from the guards to get it filled with water, and Billy Moore knelt in that tub. This pastor and his wife, they, they dipped him backward into the water, and they baptized him. And God began to change Billy. Instead of mounting a defense, he ended up just pleading guilty to murder. He actually told the judge, how can I tell you I'm not guilty? I didn't do it when I did. I am guilty. I did do it. And according to law, he was sentenced to death. But the criminal justice system, as we all know, is slow. It actually took 16 years before it came his time to die. And it was during those 16 years that Billy Moore just kept on opening his life up to God And God just kept on changing him from the inside out, making him more and more like Jesus Christ. He became a model prisoner, so much so that the guards all called him the peacemaker. And death row, which had been an ugly, violent, hate-filled place before Billy got there, well, he started having Bible studies with the other inmates. And one after another, uh, they found life in Jesus just like he did. He even reached out to the family of his victim and asked for their forgiveness. And over time, a relationship was formed between himself and the family of his victim. Finally, in August 1990, The court system finally caught up with Billy. The hours began to tick down to August 22nd when he would be executed. And as that day got close, they put him in what is called the death watch cell. During those last days, his lawyers would call him and they reported that it was a real strange experience for them. One of them said, well, we would call him to console him, but he would end up consoling us. He would ask us, how are you guys doing? Are you guys okay? I know this is hard for you guys. We were trying to help him, but he was helping us. The day before his execution, August 21, 1990, it was just seven and a half hours before he was to be electrocuted. Something amazing took place. His head had already been shaved. His calf had already been shaved for the electrodes. But that close to the time, the Georgia Pardon and Parole Board held an emergency hearing. And they talked about a model prisoner that they had been hearing about from many, many directions, even from such spiritual luminaries as Mother Teresa. She actually personally reached out and lobbied on Billy's behalf. They had heard from the family of his victim. That family had gone to the parole board and had pleaded with them to set Billy Moore free. On that evening, just seven and a half hours before, the five members of the pardon and parole board looked at that repentant, transformed man, looked at all the appeals being made on his behalf, and they did something so unprecedented that it made the front page of the New York Times. They looked at Billy Moore, and they said, we're going to show you mercy. They threw out his death sentence. They set the gears in motion to release him from prison. 
It was the first time in Georgia history that a confessed killer on death row was set free. There was an editorial in the Atlanta Journal and Constitution that simply said, quote, in the eyes of many, Billy Moore is a saintly figure. And today, years and years later, it's still true, you can go to Rome, Georgia, and you can attend a church where Billy Moore is serving as a pastor. If you today are in prison in, in that area, then Billy Moore has probably come and seen you. He's probably talked to you and shared his story with you because he goes to the prisons every week. I found a picture that was taken of him not too long ago that I wanted to show you. And this is a reminder that when you come to Christ, he changes everything. You're not only adopted into his family and you not only become a precious son or daughter of God, you are also now, no matter your past, you're now declared a saint. God makes you a saint. And then God embarks on that project of helping you become who you already are. Are you cooperating with God in this project? Are you joining him and allowing him to change you and to make you what he has already declared you to be? He's going to do it. You just need to let him. You are in Christ a saint, holy, loved, belonging to God, God's own possession. This is the word of the Lord today for us. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, um, we ask that in this moment um, you would speak your truth into the very depths of our hearts, into the core of our being. And Lord, where we struggle to accept who you declare us to be, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, change our thinking and strengthen our hearts to see truth and to live according to that truth? Father, I, I pray also for anyone who may be here right now who has never encountered you, never met you in a personal way. I ask, Lord, that you would open their heart and you would grant them repentance and grant them forgiveness so that they can turn to you and they can call on you and receive you as Lord and Savior through what your son Jesus has done. Lord, we ask you to bring new life into being by your power, even now, even today. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,